Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And once again, welcome to another edition of Blunt Business here on CannabisRadio.com. And really appreciate all of you listening to us. Subscribe to the show. If you haven't done so, please do that over at CannabisRadio.com. You can find us over on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and so many other places. So my next guest, she is armed with a legal background, business marketing degree, and startup industry experience. Uh, she brings an unmatched combination of multifaceted knowledge and dedication to the table. And I'm joined with someone who has been a guest on the Chronic Risk podcast from the NCRMA. So I'm joined here on Blue Business by the CEO of Canna Business Services, Emily Seelman. Emily, thanks for being on. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Like I said, and I know uh, Rock on the Fox at NCRMA had you featured, and there were a lot of different subjects that, you know, to bring you on the Blunt Business, and I wanted to go ahead and get wrapped around, because uh, I really could use your expertise on various issues that we have going on. So first of all, let's talk about cannabis as a service. Uh, your company offers unparalleled marketing expertise, uh, market expertise and regulatory compliance, providing uh, high-level certainty in an uncertain and high-risk market, uh, specialized industry guides, networks of high-value connections, opportunities, and future-proof solutions. So take us real quickly into the catalog of the compliances that you provide. Absolutely. Um, again, thank you for having me. This is great. I love I love this podcast. My team loves this podcast, so we really appreciate this opportunity. Um, yeah, our team is full service. We're woman-owned, predominantly woman-operated as well. We're actually global. Um, so we've serviced clients um, within our country and in other countries that have cannabis programs. So we offer... On the pre-licensure side, as we like to say it, um, support in applying for licenses in state uh, regulated industries or in countries where there's a regulated cannabis program, all the way through post-licensure, business build-out support, business growth support, all kinds of things. And all of it's focused around compliance and really making sure that you don't get your license suspended or revoked or anything else that could happen in this industry. So let's go and go to a couple different things about what's going on when it comes to compliance. Now, recently, California Governor Gavin Newsom reported his newly formed task force eradicated 11, get this, 11,260 illegal cannabis plants and destroyed 5,237 pounds of illegal processed cannabis flour. Retail value up to $15 million. That's, I mean, but it, again, illicit. And led by the Department of Cannabis Control's Law Enforcement Division and California's Department of Fish and Wildlife. The task force conducted an operation in a rural area of Jupiter in Tulum County on October 4th, targeting unlicensed indoor cultivation operations. Nine search warrants were served. Uh, we talked about the numbers. They're huge. And Governor Newsom said, quote, that they're taking immediate and aggressive action to stop illegal cannabis and strengthening the burgeoning legal market throughout the state. By shutting down illegal growth sites and applying serious consequences to offenders, we're working to curtail the criminal organizations that are undercutting the regulated cannabis market in California. So when you see that, I mean, it's the power of what, you know, the law enforcement can come in 
And imagine if that's something that happened to a legit business because of compliance. When you look at stories of the illicit market, Emily, as an ongoing issue in each market, talk to me about how the companies you consult express their frustrations while they're investing the so much to follow the rules. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and that's a really, really interesting bit of news. I know California is really big on uh, stopping some of the illicit uh, businesses out there. But I, I think there's a larger issue there um, on the illicit side. California is so heavily regulated for for the legal operators that it can be quite challenging to actually stay in business. And so I think when you see a very uh, high functioning illicit market still occurring in a state, it, it will always occur in any state where there's a regulated market. But I think where you see the more robust illicit markets or things happening like this that we're seeing in California, it should make us all pause and wonder, hey, is our regulated program working? And not just from a compliance and regulatory standpoint, but what about the red tape that a lot of these these businesses that are trying to remain legal or open up legally have to to go through? So it can be really challenging. And I know that is definitely one of the biggest frustrations my clients express when they're competing, not only against the legal operators who are heavily funded, they're coming in, they may be multi-state operators that are successfully operating in other states. And then they come into a new state and they've got that backing. And then you've got a mom and pop store just trying to open, but the barriers can be pretty enormous. You're not only talking fees to apply, but you're talking fees once you win a license, you're talking ongoing fees, audits, um, investigatory audits, um, impromptu audits, all kinds of things. And then on top of that, to in order to remain compliant, you're hiring groups like me to try to help you to meet those roles in the regulations. And so you've got places like California where it can be really, really challenging to get off the ground legally. I think that's definitely one of the biggest frustrations my clients express. And it's not really frustration against the illicit operators. It's frustration against the states and the states their uh, commissions or their departments create these programs without really much knowledge about how to successfully get one of these markets off the ground. And so while there should be roles and there should be regulations to protect the health of the user, I, I think in some instances, we're starting to see that there could be uh, overregulation and some of these states may tip towards that. So it's, it's been a, it's, that's a great article you brought up and great bit of news. I think that was like within the week that that happened. And that was, uh, uh, and that's not the first time that's happened there. And, and it's not going to be the first time it happens in, in many other states. But by and large, that's the biggest issue. We're seeing that in New York already. Um, you know, will this legal market really curb the illicit market? I don't know. It's going to be interesting to find out. I always think back to, Cantrust Holdings and all the issues they had where I think it was about $12, billion, $12 million worth of product had to be taken. But that's a that was, you know, that's a licensed grower. And to go through, and all the things they had to go through in terms of having to go through a name change and just trying to rebuild the reputation from all the damage that was done. Yes. It's those kind of things. It's just a magazine. The impact of that is, I mean, you know, it's like, okay, we're following the rules. We're doing everything right. But that right there, to know that the power that a state of California can have if anything goes wrong, I mean, and, you know, if people want to go ahead and skirt the, the amount of uh, investment needed in compliance, that this is a, it's an example you can use when you need to talk to someone and say, listen, I know you're not going to be like this, this, this outlier, but you know what? 
you have to be concerned because of what can happen if any little thing goes out of line. Exactly. And we're seeing that in New Jersey. I think a lot of the fees that are associated with the licensing process and the wait times and the cost and expense to obtain a resolution and uh, site control over a property, there's some significant costs in this whole application and post-licensure process. But what I'd like to see the regulators focused on is um, maybe more than a slap on the wrist for some of these operators who are knowingly and willingly violating regulations and at the detriment of the health of the user. And by example, there was an article recently where there were a few operators that were actually referenced in the articles. And and one of them, one of the operators was sweeping up overflow uh, cannabis that had fallen on the floor and sweeping that up and jarring it and selling it. And so that is a blatant violation I'm not sure if there was an error in the SOPs or a lack of oversight or the wrong person employed or someone that should not have remained employed as long as they were or a lack of training uh, from management. I'm not sure where the chain broke there, but boy, you know, you see that and then you see the slap of the wrist that they got and, and you wonder, you know, there's good people out there that are trying to start ethical businesses and they're competing against these people who are selling uh, you know, opening up their stores when they're supposed to be selling restricted hours to some medical patients first and then open to adult use. And they're not doing that and they're getting a slap on the wrist. So why wouldn't they continue doing it? So that's where the frustration, I think, comes in for a lot of groups. And later on in the show, I'm going to talk about where we've seen that kind of activity, where we've seen certain companies that are doing things where, you know, they're they're crossing the line of what they're doing and it needs to be brought out. So there's various compliance issues. That we haven't really talked much about on the program. We talk about compliance a lot. And of course, we advocate for the fact that every company out there, you, you need to be able to go ahead and have whatever standards of compliance, regardless of what the state requires, it's always to be above and beyond whatever compliance standards that are out there. That's what every business has to be in whichever market you're in. And we're going to talk about various issues that also go with compliance. You wouldn't think we have to deal with it, but it's things you need to know. It's things you need to be aware of. I'm here with Emily Seelman, CEO of Canna Business Services here on Bunt Business. We'll be back after a short break. Rolling into some sponsors, but we'll be right back with more Blunt Business. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. 
And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Welcome back. I'm here with Emily Seelman, the CEO of Canna Business Services. And the website, by the way, is CannaBusinessServices.com, all one word. And you can find more information with them. And with that said, let's move along to a recent story we all have heard about, and this is from bankingdive.com, I think of the story. We know that about a week ago, as we're recording this program, uh, President Biden had recently announced his executive action to pardon all prior federal offenses of simple possession of marijuana and encouraging governors to follow suit with state regard to state offense. Now, I said already on this program, I see this on all accounts of symbolic gesture. The fact that it might be 6,000 plus odd people that might be uh, pardoned, I don't know you know, we haven't seen anything where that has actually happened, but I feel like, you know, that is a line to throw it out. It's a political thing. I'm not going to delve any more into that. What's on any political show uh, at the core of this program. But what is seen, they say, was a large, a major step toward decriminalization. He's also, the president also did ask, he's second, asking the Secretary of Health and Human Services and the Justice Department to review the designation of cannabis as a Schedule One drug. And I know this happened before. And some cannabis banking analysts said descheduling the drug could actually usher in more compliance reporting requirements for banks involved in this bank. Now, what can you tell us, Emily, about the obstacles that stem from the banking side for the 700 some odd banks that service the cannabis industry now? So, first of all, I I agree with your analysis uh, as far as the, the gesture being symbolic, largely symbolic. Um, you know, I think by way of background. In order to answer that question, I think it, it's it, it deserves focus on something you just mentioned, which was scheduling cannabis as a, a schedule one drug. And just for people who may not know what that means, that by definition means that cannabis was classified as something that not only was a high risk of abuse for people, but there was no accepted medical use. So by definition, a schedule one drug has a high potential of, of, of abuse and no accepted medical use, which it just, I mean, I'm sure any of us in this industry think, believes is absolutely bonkers because there's, of course, accepted medical use for it. Um, but that's significant because descheduling it would remove it from being a schedule one listed drug and move it down potentially to schedule two, schedule three, where maybe there's more accepted medical use, but considered a high potential of abuse and, and all of those things, whatever politically I, I think works um, for people who are managing the, the scheduling. But I think it also warrants a little background and, you know, I guess it's hard to look at that and, and hit on the banking without first seeing that all of these issues, this is not new um, using, you know, the plant uh, and getting hyper-focused on it, scheduling and the implications of that, when we've seen throughout history, the government has been um, arbitrarily scheduling or descheduling drugs, using them against people's will to test different things. I mean, it, it's it's crazy when you look at the history of it. And that's what really got me into this, this industry to begin with. And then we see its effect on regulated ancillary businesses like the banking industry. So there are a few banks that obviously within any given state with a regulated program that permit cannabis bank accounts or operating accounts. 
there are kind of two different types of accounts. There are accounts for companies like mine who may associate with cannabis businesses, but we don't quote touch the plant because we're not growing um, or selling cannabis. And then there are accounts that are for operators who are actually in the field, running cultivation facilities, manufacturing facilities, labs, things like that. So there, it is very challenging from a customer's perspective already to open up a bank account. But now this is a great question because now banks are starting to think, okay, how does this affect us, the descheduling? And at first glance, we think, okay, well, this will allow them to open up and, and feel more comfortable serving more people, which I do think is the case. But then I, you know, on the other hand, I do think that this is going to put a lot of pressure on banks to understand where they could be liable. So by example, when you deschedule cannabis, that means more people are going to try to participate in this market or more banks are going to come online to help operators open up bank accounts. Well, there are really stringent requirements when you're talking about state charter banks or, um, you know, the banks that you and I may or credit unions. I know that's been also a thing. Yep, exactly. And so they have an obligation to make sure that their clients are actually one operating legally two, well, before that, that they actually have their licenses, their state licenses, two, that they're operating legally, three, that they're remaining compliant with bank uh, regulations and rules or even IRS. I mean, the code 280E under the IRS is a significant impact on cannabis businesses. And that's essentially that cannabis businesses cannot claim deductions like normal, uh, non-federally illicit businesses can. So all of those things banks have to consider in this process. Now, we've already seen banks that are open to accepting cannabis businesses and every new state that opens up, you'll see banks pop up that allow it far and few between. So they're already in you know, the process of trying to figure out how to navigate this industry. But as you get more groups coming in, you may start to see, especially as the industry matures, maybe that there's some culpability on a bank's part or an attorney's part or an insurance company's part for having these cannabis clients uh, or cannabis operators as clients and maybe not having a role in making sure that they remain compliant. So it's going to be interesting to see how it rolls out. I think it's a great thing to consider is how these banks navigate this going forward and how they ensure that their clients are actually not skirting the rules, not violating state law, uh, not trafficking, you know, trafficking their drugs across state lines while it's federally illegal. You can't do that. So all of those things, you're talking about bankers who have a specialized knowledge that is not in cannabis. And then suddenly they have to understand this industry enough to know how to make sure their clients are remaining compliant and following the SOPs that the state would want them to. It's going to be a really interesting thing to see over the next five or 10 years and how this, how this lands. Agreed. I want to jump into another subject. Now, MJ Biz recently wrote an article titled How Cannabis Companies Can Properly Dispose of Product Waste. And they're talking about how cannabis regulators are concerned that trashed cannabis will fall into the wrong hands. And companies are required to go to great lengths to ensure it's unusable when thrown out. So businesses often go as far as mixing old cannabis with standard kitty litter. And others spend thousands of dollars on industrial shredders. Now, one cultivator was quoted as saying that, quote, regardless of disposal method, State agencies will require the waste type, batch ID, and weight of waste to be recorded on paper or electronic manifest, entered into their state's track and trace system, and be available for audit upon request. That's why, obviously, 
uh, companies will hire a third party waste disposal service to save them the headache. Another cost accrued on top of everything else. Like there, it feels like I'm, I would imagine with, when you talk to companies, there's just an endless amount of cost towards compliance and, you know, their bottom line is continuing to dwindle. So talk about the, this end of the compliance and the options available to those who must deal with too much deal. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, that's a great question. And I do agree with you that this is another area where just costs start to stack. So in most businesses, you just throw away or recycle what you don't want. And here, this is another area where cannabis license holders are required to remain in strict compliance with state rules around waste disposal. Now, the first challenge is that, generally speaking, state regulations don't really provide a lot of detail around what is compliant and what's not. So like you mentioned, you have to basically make it unusable. Well, what does that mean? By general definition, and I think a policy that states just kind of blindly adopt because they don't know how to make it any different or any better or really analyze if this works, but generally that means it has to be at least 50, 51% or more um, mixed with something that's not cannabis. So like you had mentioned, kitty litter is one. Um, there's a lot of different ways you can mix it, but it basically, it just renders it unusable. And so if someone was to try to sneak into your dumpster or something or your, your trash cans while you're waiting pickup or haul out services, then they really couldn't do anything with it. That's, that's the thought behind those regulations. So that's the best a state regulator can do. I think unless they were ever operating before they became a regulator, which is probably not going to happen. So now you've got an operator who is looking at very broad regulations that don't have a lot of detail around how to remain compliant. And then the operator needs to develop SOPs around not only waste disposal, but before that, quarantining the products based on why they're getting disposed of. Are they expired? Do they have mold or mildew? Are they contaminated in some other way? Are they returned product? You know, expired product versus contaminated product, they're going to be quarantined a little bit differently or maybe written in your uh, your log, your waste disposal log differently. So you're developing SOPs around this and then around not only quarantine and storage, but also your security, uh, your cameras, what the process is for the agents who can manage that waste and all of those things. So our, our firm is often used to develop these types of SOPs around those techniques and whether it's cultivator or retailer dealing with, you know, whether it's cultivator d- disposing of yield or excess yield, like you had mentioned, or retailers who are trying to dispose of a product or a cartridge or a recalled item, those SOPs are very important. And keeping detailed records is also important. So you're going to track everything from the agent working on it to the date and time that it's disposed, the reason, um, all of those things have to be tracked. And yeah. You know, I, I think there's an accountability there. And that's, and then, like you said, outsourcing it to a third party adds an extra cost. I think as the industry matures, we'll see some maybe more creative ways and, and cheaper ways to dispose of it that states uh, are okay with. For now, it's definitely going to be one of those costly areas. And you think about the fact that you can't burn it, you can't just dispose, like throw it into a dumpster. You're worried about if it does get into anybody else's hand because it's still, it's just not the easiest way when you get to where you are and then you yield so much and then you just can't do anything about it and that's expired. And 
for something that you're never going to use, that you have to get rid of, that you have to treat it so detailed and so carefully as if it were new. And, you know, it's just, it's disposed. It's like you're losing it. And, but you still have to go through all this red tape and the cost of doing it as well. Like, it's just, I don't think, you know, other mainstream uh, companies or, or industries, they don't have to worry about this kind of thing. But this is like the another obstacle that in, um, you know, where we're still awaiting legalization federally. And this is something here where, I don't know if something can be done here where, this is going to be addressed because it's a cost that I don't think anybody talks about, but they probably have to go and deal with it. And it's like, I mean, you have to kind of overproduce to make sure you always have product and inventory and what you can do. And, and right now you can't export it. So I mean, you right. have nothing to do, but let it expire. And then you have to d- dispose of it properly and document mm-hmm. it and log it and catalog. It's just, it's mind boggling. <laughs> it really is. And, it's this is the result of treating a plant like it's this hazardous material. Yeah. It's it exposes the lunacy, I think, of what a schedule one classification results in. Agreed. Let's go and go into something. We're going to go into one more break. And when we come back, I mentioned earlier about how we're seeing retailers that are doing things where, you know, there's third party outlets now selling product. And that's what's going on in Canada. We're going to report about that. And I want to get your take on it. I'm here again with Emily Seaman, the CEO of Canna Business Services. Website is Canna, C-A-N-N-A, businessservices.com. One word. Take a look at that while we go to break. Rolling into some sponsors, but we'll be right back with more Blunt Business. I'm back with final questions with Emily Seaman, CEO of Canna Business Services here on Blunt Business. The Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario is also responsible for cannabis shops. We're talking about Canada, by the way. They warn licensed retailers against selling their inventory to quote unquote unlicensed third parties upon the closure of the store, reporting MJ Biz Daily. Uh, the warning came quote in response to an offer from a company called Leafy Things Canada to buy struggling stores cannabis inventory. End quote. So Emily, should U.S. companies be concerned because you know once legalization comes in, well, I don't know if this has happened in a state issue so far, but should we be concerned about these kinds of extreme measures where? Companies might look as a last resort to unload extra inventory, and it's not being documented. I, I definitely think so. I, I think it's a mistake to believe that that's not already happening in more facilities outside of the one that was reported by the Alcohol and Gaming Commission, and that it's not happening already here. There are and have been instances where operators, you know, this actually goes back to your prior question about waste disposal yeah. and the, the SOPs around that. You've got operators who may be taking on too much inventory and not really able to or thoughtfully tracking what inventory, the inventory quantity that they should have, um, whether that's a cultivator growing or a retailer or dispenser um, stocking their shelves. There is an ongoing question around how much inventory should we have? We don't want to run out, but we don't want the products to expire because then we have to dispose of them. And I think what we've seen um, and what we will continue to see is extreme measures like this for operators who want to lessen the cost of the disposal of that excess inventory. And I recall that happening, I believe it was back in 2019 in Pennsylvania, and that's where I I kind of cut my teeth in the cannabis industry back right. back then, 2016, 17. And it was around 2019 where when an operator had got 
shut down, I believe, um, or at least fined. I believe they were shut down, but I could be incorrect there. But I, I recall the instance where they had been, their cameras kind of mysteriously shut off. And it was right around the same time where their waste suddenly disappeared. And I think you're going to see more and more instances of that where you can maybe make a correlation between, okay, well, if your cameras suddenly somehow shut off when all operators are supposed to have at least four hour minimum backup, that's the general rule across states. And then you've got waste that suddenly disappears when you're supposed to have redundancy in your SOPs around this and you're supposed to have, you know, maybe a monitoring agent or employee and then or maybe one or two employees at minimum um, handling that waste. So how does all of this go missing and how does all of it happen? And I think it's exactly what you had just described in Ontario. I think people are trying to figure out ways to tap in maybe to both the legal and the illicit market and maybe utilizing the illicit market as a way to curb some of the costs that are being incurred on the legal side because of all the regulation. So it's a pretty unfortunate thing. I think it's something that regulators are going to have to become a little bit smarter about and how to maybe have some more extreme measures and use some people as cautionary tales around why you shouldn't risk it. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out as the market matures for sure. But Ontario is definitely an example. It's one that they're ahead of us in their their maturity of the program. So it's a great place to look at to say, okay, this is what we're going to be seeing more of in the future in the United States. Exactly. And this these are all the perfections we have to go and worry about. And for those, you know, hopefully we you know put a call to action out there that you need to go ahead and find out and be aware of all these different issues within your space if you're a business owner, cultivator. And you need someone like, you know, what, what Emily's offering right here with Cannabis Services. So let's go ahead and quickly, quickly tell people about the website again. Cannabusinessservices.com. You're offering consulting, business application, permit services, marketing, and post-licensure business build-out support. So real quickly, you know, you really quickly summarize what you're able to go in, where how you might be able to go and answer some of these issues that we talked about today and what they should do to work. Absolutely. Well, I think in these situations that we just discussed today, I think the usual first step in, in with our clients here is to make an analysis of where they're at right now in their business, understand their SOPs, do a review of what they've got written, what's probably in their head, and they just have a process mentally that they're not actually, they don't actually have in writing, and then really trying to work through those SOPs to make them ironclad, to come up with redundancy to come up with better management policies, maybe even down to the organizational structure of the company. Um, because not only does this help with remaining compliant, but this affects your bottom line. And I think that was something you kept coming to in all of these, these articles you were referencing and the questions you were asking is, all of these things affect your bottom line. And at the end of the day, a business is trying to not only just survive and stay in business, but become profitable and feed their families. The business owners want to succeed here. And our job is to help you succeed. So whether that's on the business build out support or regulatory compliance, understanding and and reworking, redrafting your SOPs, or helping you through an audit or anticipating an investigatory review of a certain process, or even on the business side and and really actually growing it in a sustainable way. 
Um, we, we support people all along that process. It looks a little different for different people. But at the end of the day, it comes down to what are your practices? What are you doing every single day? Because what you do every single day is what is ultimately going to impact your bottom line and your outcome. So if it's in writing, but you're not following it, it doesn't count. <laughs> and if it's in your head, it doesn't count. So what's on paper? What are you following? What are your SOPs? What is your structure? And you do that every day. It's pretty objective and, and it, it points directly to how you'll succeed or how you'll fail. Wonderful. So thank you, Emily, for being on with us again, CEO. Emily Sheevan, CEO of Cannabis Services here on Bump Business. Thanks for being on and thanks for you know sharing your insight on all these initiatives. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And thank you, listeners, for listening to another Blunt Business. We'll talk to you next time. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.